Welcome to Virtual Student Experiences, where we inspire students to aspire. For more information, please check out our website at www.virtualstudentexperiences.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Virtual Student Experiences Medical Spotlight. If you're new to our program, Virtual Student Experiences is a pro bono initiative spearheaded for students by students. The goal of the VSC is to give students around the world an opportunity to hear from professionals in their career industry of interest in a friendly and casual setting. So for students that know what they want to do, the role of the VSC is to encourage, allow, and connect those students with professionals. Through VSC, students are given the chance to decide if their career choice really fits the personality, skills, and overall interests. For students who are ambivalent about their future, the role of the VSC is to give them not only a chance to not only explore, but to discover different career paths and options. To find out more about information and sign up to be notified about our next webinars, you can visit virtualstudentexperiences.com. So before we get started, I just want to go over some housekeeping things. Firstly, I'm going to be asking our guest professional that I will introduce in a second a series of basic questions so you can get a good idea of who he is and what he does. And then after at any time, if you think of a question, feel free to post in the Q&A module and we'll get to it in the later part of the webinar. So without further ado, Mr. Sinkov is the founder and CEO of the Sinkov Spine Center, where he is currently a spine surgeon. His journey began at the University of Kansas, where he earned his bachelor's degree in biochemistry. He then went to medical school at the John Hopkins School of Medicine. After that, he then continued his honing his skills for seven years until becoming a spine surgeon at the New Hampshire Orthopedic Center. He moved to Nevada. He moved to the Nevada Orthopedic and Spine Center at the beginning of 2020. He founded Sinkoff Spine Center, which caters to adults with spine issues. He currently holds a position on the board of directors at the European Spine Journal, Spine Journal and Journal of Orthopedics for Physician Assistance. And he continues to do outstanding work in the medical field. And we are very lucky to have him today. Thank you, Mr. Sinkoff, so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Um, could you just start off by telling us a little bit about your career and what you do? So I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon. Basically, that means I went through uh, training as an orthopedic surgeon, typically dealing with bones and joints, and then did further specialization on how to do spine surgery. So all I really treat now are spine disorders in adults, um, basically anything connected to your spine, your cervical, thoracic, or lumbar spine that requires surgical intervention. I also do some non-optic treatment as, as well. Awesome. Um, in your opinion, how important is someone's education in high school, college, and even medical school, medical school in order to become successful more specifically, um, or generally in the medical field and more specifically <clears throat> in the field of surgery? Uh, well, obviously, in order for you to be a successful physician, be it surgeon or any other specialist, you do have to have a basic understanding of what you're doing in your profession. So uh, there's a lot of science involved in pretty much any specialty in medicine. Um, so you do have to have a lot of education in basic sciences. Um, most physicians are also having to interact with patients all the time. Patients are life human beings. So some type of education in psychology or just the ability to have good communication skills uh, good listening skills is very important in order to not just make patients feel good about seeing you as a doctor, but also be able to diagnose them properly because 
if patients do not give you certain information that you need to know, but you simply can't get out of them because you don't have good communication skills, it does not matter how smart you are in sciences, without proper amount of information, you will not be able to get a proper diagnosis or decide on a proper treatment. So obviously education is very important for this. You gotta know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And in terms of education, is there any, um, to your knowledge, is there any base courses that you would suggest students look into um, mm -hmm. that are interested in the field of medicine and surgery, um, typically at the high school and college level? Sure. So traditionally, many years ago, um, basically for you to get into medical school, you have to have some kind of a science major. Uh, over the past several decades, medical schools have been slowly moving away from that, realizing that there's more to being a doctor than just really knowing basic sciences very well. Um, so now medical school is actually making point of being more diverse and looking for students, not just with a traditional majors in biology, chemistry, biochemistry, but also, you know, music majors, communication majors, international studies majors, political science, whatever. So you don't necessarily have to just study what you would use as a doctor in college. Um, you can kind of pursue a passion, pursue your interest, but obviously if you are interested in medicine, you still need to understand basic science because that science is what we use to diagnose and treat patients. So my recommendation is look through what is required on MCAT, Medical College Admission Test. That test basically will show you what you need to have as basic um, kind of knowledge building blocks for you to be able to get into medical school and to be able to understand the science of being a physician. But uh, so uh, courses in physics, mathematics, uh, biology, chemistry uh, is basically what MCAT will um, test. They also have an essay portion as well. So you do need to be able to have, you know, some kind of a communication class as well. So you do need to take those certain core classes. Um, it's easier to start those on a high school level and then continue with them on a college level than to completely avoid them at high school level. So I definitely wouldn't recommend doing some kind of sciences. And for most high schools, in order for you to graduate, you do have to satisfy some type of a, uh, science um, credit, so to speak, anyway. So most high school curriculums will kind of almost force you to do that anyway. Um, and same thing in college, but you don't necessarily have to commit to a science major, so to speak. You can you know, study whatever you want, so to speak, as long as you still learn the building blocks of understanding the science of human body so you can become a physician, um, go through medical school, get into residency. Hmm. And for students that, or college students that typically don't have a science-based or medical-based major, is it common or uncommon for them to um, be able to switch into and get into medical school? Um, like I, I wouldn't say they would have to switch their majors. I mean, most colleges, uh, especially liberal arts colleges, you'll have some kind of a science requirement anyway, and it's fairly easy to take the core classes you would need to take to be able to pass MCAT, medical college admission test, but still, you know, still take the classes you want for whatever major you do. Like I said, you can be a music major for all the medical schools concerned, if anything, that might make you more of an attractive, attractive candidate because you will be a little bit different than all the biochemistry majors like myself uh, doing an interview and talking about their um, basic science research in the lab. They do like to have kind of well-rounded physicians. So even those with, you know, basic science majors, so to speak, 
it is advisable for them to be a competitive candidate to get into medical school, for them to do something that is non-science related and be able to talk about that. Um, I, for example, I was a, um, I was a biochemistry major. I did a lot of basic science research, not necessarily because I knew I had to do it for medical school. That's basically what I like. I'm actually interested in that kind of stuff. Uh, but I was also a president of the International Students Association. I did a lot of other community and volunteering work. So I was able to show that I'm well-rounded beyond just knowing basic science. For somebody who is a music major, it will be a little bit different. Obviously, they already have that demonstration of them having been a well-rounded person. They instead need to show that, yes, I'm also interested in sciences, so I can actually understand how human body works, so I can still be a doctor, even though I'm a music major. So basically, the advice is be well-rounded. Uh, it will help you almost no matter which medical specialty you get, get into. You need to know basic sciences, but you need to know a lot of other stuff to really succeed as a doctor. Hmm. And I mean, in your opinion, how difficult is medical school and like what mindset do you have to have to become a successful medical practitioner? Um, it's, there's really no one answer to that. Within medicine, there are tons of medical specialties which can be very different from each other. You can be a pathologist and actually never interact with patients, only look at samples in a lab or do autopsies, and basically, technically, don't have to have communication skills for that. You'll never get to talk to patients. Most, I mean, some pathologists do, but majority do not. Or you can be a psychiatrist who all you do is communicate with patients and you do not really get yourself involved in basic sciences much, other than understanding how the psychiatric medications you prescribe might affect the patient, how they would interact with other medications. So there's really a lot of diversity in what kind of a doctor you're going to be. Uh, a lot of people don't really know yet what kind of doctor they want to be by the time they get into medical school or change their mind several times. I have changed my mind several times uh, from the point I got into medical school to the point I finally decided, okay, I'm going to be a spine surgeon. Um, so I wouldn't say there's, uh, so there's quite a bit of diversity. Basically, the, the main mindset is, I know it's a little bit of cliche, but basically you need to care. As a physician, uh, any kind of physician, you are basically trying to help a human being with whatever problems they have. Um, it'll be, you know, initially you can just kind of go through the motions, but eventually you need something more than just well, I just want to be a doctor for the sake of prescribing medications, doing surgery. You have to care. So kind of having a caring personality, being interested in, you know, improving the life of other people, it's probably the most basic trait you need to have as a physician for you to succeed because that will keep you motivated to continue being better and better in what you are. Because, you know, once you graduate from medical school, residency and fellowship, your learning does not stop. You're going to learn for the rest of your career until you retire because, not only there's so much to know that it's impossible to learn all during the training, but also science constantly changes. When we started medical school, um, the, a lot of our professors basically told us, listen, half of what we teach you right now is going to be wrong. Problem is we don't know which half. So we have to teach you that. And later on, we're going to figure out what else is going to happen, how the science is going to change. And the way we treat patients might potentially change. And in you know, my 10 years career as a spine surgeon, I already do a lot of different surgeries now that I did not do 10 years ago because the science changed. We have developed new techniques. We have developed new devices. I am now using a spine robot to do spine surgeries. That was not even on the horizon 10 years ago when I fully graduated from my training and theoretically was a fully full-fledged spine surgeon. So um, kind of desire to learn continuously and 
caring for improvement, improving human life are the basic traits that will make you a good doctor. Awesome. Thanks. And then uh, how important do you feel are mentors? And what would be your suggestion as to how to find mentors that will help guide you on your journey? I think mentors are very important. I've had many mentors who helped me along the way, both by teaching me or just motivating me in which direction to go, so to speak, and kind of motivating you to continue doing that because it is going to be a lot of hard work. It's going to be hard work to get into medical school. It's going to be hard work to go through medical school work. It will be even harder work to be a resident or a fellow. And then the real hard work becomes when you become a real physician. It only gets harder and harder. So you need to have something that motivates you and basically makes it worth it. And mentors really help with that kind of show you, you know, why is it worth it to go through all that hard work and do what you do. So I had a lot of mentors along the way. I had mentors when I was in high school, I was shadowing an ophthalmologist, kind of basically getting into, um, you know, uh, uh, getting ready to get into uh, college and potentially become pre-med. Both my parents were physicians, so obviously I had them as mentors as well. But I, every step along the way, I had somebody who would advise me. So my advice is, um, you might have to go through several people before you find the mentor that kind of speaks to you and uh, you can understand you guys kind of connect. Um, so don't be afraid to kind of look. And if you feel like a certain person theoretically could have been a mentor for a friend of yours, but doesn't really connect with you, look for somebody else um, uh, and you know, reach out to them. A lot of people feel shy, especially as a high school uh, student or early in your college career, you might be very shy to say, Hey, can I, can I ask you a question? Can I follow you around? Can I spend a day with you doing what you do? Don't be shy to ask. Most of us really, you know, if we like what we do, we're also going to like to teach it to others as well. I have, you know, when I was in college, I tutored, you know, freshman in college. Uh, um, when I was in medical school, I helped some college students and you know, helped my classmates. When I was in residency, I helped medical students. Right now, I'm a um, full-fledged physician. I do have medical students that actually go through an official rotation with me. I, you know, to me, theoretically, it's a distraction. It takes time out of my day, but to me, it's worth it to kind of pass it along. I don't mind being a mentor. I like what I do so much. I want others to be able to do it as well. Obviously, I cannot fix all spine disease there is in the world. Other people need to do it. I'd rather them do it well. I think I do it well, so I want to pass on that knowledge. So most people who are mentors really want to be mentors. You just have to ask. They may not know that you want them to be their mentor, so don't be shy to ask them. Because, you know, worst case scenario, they say no, but most likely they'll say yes sure and i would love to help awesome and then what do you can you share like one piece of knowledge that you from a mentor that you really live by and have benefited from um probably the yeah there, there are a lot it's hard to pick i had a lot of wonderful mentors uh one kind of if i have to like use one mentor that kind of gave me one sentence that really helped me uh that was already in my spine fellowship it was dr toralani in baltimore um who um there was a horrible snowstorm to the point that roads were closed and there was a governor order that you basically will be arrested if you're out on the road driving. But I had patients around in the hospital. So I, you know, even though theoretically nobody had to be, could be on the road, I knew that I still have to get to the hospital because nobody would help those patients uh, check on them after surgery, make sure everything was going well. So I kind of braved the snowstorm and drove through it. Fortunately, I had an SUV, so I was able to do that safely, of course. Uh, but, you know, he was impressed by that because a lot of people, a lot of doctors were not able to or really wanted to get into the hospital that day. It was a really bad weather in, in Baltimore. Uh, while it does snow fairly, you know, 
not on a regular basis, but when it snows, it's basically an emergency. They have very low capacity in that city to deal with big snowfalls. They just, it doesn't snow often enough for them to justify building up, you know, thousands of plow trucks. So they have very few, so it's just hard to uh, get through it. But basically what he told me and that kind of helped me, um, if you take care of the patient, everything else will take care of itself. Basically, um, meaning that if you take good care of the patient, you really want to help them, then, you know, the money, the success, the reputation, everything will follow that. If you instead chase money, don't really care about patients, you're going to crash. It's not going to work. Patients will not come to you. It, very quickly, patients will figure out that you're in it for wrong reasons. So uh, first and foremost, take care of your patient. Do the best you can to help them. And everything else in your career will fall into place if you use that as your number one rule that um, trumps everything else. Awesome. And then you did a lot of practice before come, becoming a surgeon. Um, I think it was seven years to be exact. So how yep. important is that fundamental training and really practice to becoming a successful surgeon such as yourself? Sure. So there are two components to that as a surgeon. One is a component physically performing a surgery on the human being, making sure you mechanically do everything properly, know how to use all the tools you need to use, um, and knowing what sequence the steps need to go. There are thousands of steps for each surgery, and you have to do them in the right order. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Um, so there's the technical component you have to do, which is fairly difficult, but you, know, you repeat it over and over and over again, and eventually you get good at it. And that's one part of residency. One big part of what we do is in, in residency, once you graduate from medical school, you have what's called graduated responsibility, meaning as a first-year resident, you mostly just watch what other people are doing. And as you get further along in your residency career, they'll let you do more and more and more and repeat those steps more and more and more. Eventually, it kind of becomes a muscle memory. So sometimes now I can do things and my hands will basically do the right thing without me really trying to concentrate on anymore because I've done it so much. The other part of it, and actually more important and a more difficult part to figure out as a surgeon is to actually why and uh, to do surgery on certain people and not to do surgery on other people and what is the best surgery to do. That's actually a lot harder because one of our, um, um, the chairman of orthopedic program where I was basically said, you, I can teach anybody how to operate. The hardest part is to uh, teach them when not to operate um, because, you know, as surgeons, we like to operate, we like to do that, but not everybody's going to get better from surgery. And there may be several different options of surgery or which need to be done and deciding which patient is a good surgical patient or candidate, which one is not and exactly what surgery to do is actually a lot harder. And most of what we do actually studying is not necessarily studying the procedural steps of surgery, but more of the science of why we do certain surgeons on some people, why we do other surgeons on other people, why certain people, even though they have bad symptoms, we should not do surgery because they're actually not going to get better and potentially may get worse. That's actually harder and the bigger component of what you need to do as a surgeon rather than just, you know, mechanical repetition steps. Hmm. And is there a process in which you actually really decide if the person or patient really needs, if the surgery is crucial or if you don't need the surgery and how to treat them differently? Yeah. So kind of the, the, the basic steps that I still use and kind of intuitive um, for a surgeon when a patient comes in, see, you know, number one, a, do they have real symptoms or is it they're just worried about something because their friend told them something? So is the problem they have is by actually bothering them. That's number one. 
because some patients come to me because the, somebody for some reason got an MRI on them on their spine and something looks bad, but they actually have no symptoms. I tell them, listen, while this MRI looks scary, right now you have no symptoms. I cannot make you any better than this. I can only make you worse if I do surgery. So try not to worry about it. We'll just watch it. If something bad happens, you know, we'll have time to catch it. So number one, does, do they have something that really bothers them instead of just worrying them? Um, number two, do they actually have a real structural problem? Because you may have the opposite thing, that they have a lot of back pain, but really no significant structural abnormalities in their back that I can fix as a surgeon. I should not operate on those people because, once again, mechanically, there's nothing I can do to them. Not every back pain needs a surgery. Um, so those are the basic, basic steps. Do they have a structural problem and does it bother them? And then most of the time, majority of spine surgeries are elective surgeries, meaning they don't have to be done to save somebody's life. They're done to improve the quality of life and their function. So, but surgery is also one of the most dangerous things we can do to the human body. We actually cut them open, do things to them. Bad things potentially can happen. So you have to justify why you're doing surgery on them. So most of the time we have to make sure they do what's called failed all non-operative options, meaning we have to try everything other than surgery first and only do surgery if those things did not work or if their problems are so bad, we just cannot even wait for those things to work and we've got to do surgery right away. So those are basic steps on deciding if they need surgery or not. Interesting. Um, and then at the New Hampshire Orthopedic Center, how did your education and really years of practice and experience play into your success and what responsibilities did you hold there? Well, basically, at New Hampshire Orthopedic Center was my first job out of uh, training. So uh, the biggest responsibility was instead of me um, kind of doing surgery, but also being supervised by somebody. And if I screw up, somebody's going to hold my hand and help me. All of a sudden, I was completely on my own. So I had to use all those four years of medical school, six years of residency, one year of fellowship, all that knowledge and all the skills I gained to be able to now basically swim on my own and do this on my own. So it was basically very crucial for me to know what I'm doing because nobody was holding my hand anymore. Um, I had, you know, when I'm in the operating room, if something goes bad, there was nobody coming in to save me, bail me out, or somehow fix things. I had to know how to do all that myself. So uh, that was a big part of that. Another part of that was I was in private practice. Private practice is basically a small business. Um, and uh, two years into being at that job, I became a partner, means I became one of the part owners of that business. So I had a control of how that business runs. So not only I had to know how to be a doctor, I also had to know how to run that business to make proper decisions so we're actually financially viable and can continue paying our employees and earning money ourselves and you know keeping the lights on. So that was, um, I would say in medical training overall, it's not taught as much as I think it should be. A lot of people graduate kind of not knowing how to do it. We don't go to business school, we go to medical school, but you know, part of medicine is business. It is a it is a job, especially if you become a business owner, you have to know what you're doing. So I was fortunate enough that the fellowship I picked was a private practice fellowship. So some of the training I already had before I got in there, a lot of the stuff that I did not get trained on, I basically had to learn on the spot. Hmm. And do you feel like that that experience of really just being thrown into it actually helped you to develop more as a surgeon? Yep. Yep, initially it was very scary, but uh, eventually, uh, not only, you know, obviously I became a successful surgeon, I was able to do everything safe, but I was able to start teaching other surgeons. Actually, a lot of the procedures I do now, I train other surgeons how to do it, not just medical students. 
So, you know, being a kind of in a position where you're on your own and nobody can bail you out very quickly forces you to be really good at it because you have no other choice. And then when you moved to the Nevada Orthopedic and Spine Center, in which you held the same responsibilities, was it really normal? Is it, is it normal for uh, surgeons to change treatment centers like you did? Sure. Um, Everybody is different. Uh, to me, I basically wanted to move out of New Hampshire and want to move to a warmer spot. That was my main motivator of moving out of New Hampshire. Um, I was eight years into my practice at the time. I was still, in my opinion, young enough to go to a different place and start all over. And that was the decision that we made in 2018 and moved here to Las Vegas. Um, Statistically speaking, uh, a physician, especially a surgeon, probably the same for surgeons as anybody else, but statistically speaking, 50% of uh, physicians will change jobs within the first two years out of training. So it is fairly normal for physicians to do that. Uh, you make your first choice, and maybe you did not like the job, or you maybe did not like that location. There may be many different reasons for people to switch jobs. It's obviously tough to switch a job, especially when I'm moving a completely different brand new place. All of a sudden, all the marketing that I did, all the, you know, the patients knew me, everybody knew me in New Hampshire. I moved to Nevada. Nobody knows me. I had to start all over. To me, that was worth it because I was now in a location where I didn't have to shovel snow. And to me, that was a big enough motivator to do that. Yeah, that sounds like a good reason. Yep. Um, I mean, then you recently started your own practice, which is the Sinkoff Spine Center. Why would you do that? And since it's such a big risk to go away from a steady job and create yep. your own center. Yep. Um, they have that saying in Russia, and I don't mean to promote alcohol drinking, but uh, uh, just so take it in context of it's just a saying, those who do not risk do not drink champagne. So um, the greater the risk you take in life, usually the greater the rewards. That's basically what it means. Um, basically, I also was kind of a person who was really strongly independent. Um, and I felt that uh, at that time, I could basically do this on my own. And I think I can do it well enough where I don't have to be in partnership with other people. And when you're sole owner of the practice, you have full control. You no longer have to negotiate with others on how to solve things. Um, and to me, that was a big appeal. I thought I could do it well on my own. I can do it exactly the way I want to do it. I felt that the way I do it is the best way to treat my patients. Um, and instead of having to negotiate with other physicians all the time on how to run a practice, I could just do it on my own. So while it's very risky and we're a very young company right now, um, and there's still a lot of work, a lot of building to do, uh, to me, that's worth it. This independence, this you know, having to answer only to myself and nobody else, to me, that's exhilarating. That's something I wanted to do for a long time. It was more just, you know, finding the right time and the right place to do it. And I felt like this was it. And I know you touched on it a little bit before, but what do you feel is the attitude of a surgeon and what values do surgeons usually have? And does that change over time from when you're younger in medical school to uh, when you become more experienced in your field later on? I think it changes probably the most, and I don't think that applies just to surgeons, but to anybody, you know, the further you get into a career, the more confident you become about what you do, um, the more you also realize how many things you still do not know and need to learn how to do, because every time I think I got it, I'm good at this, there is a new challenge and there is a better way to do it and I have to learn again. Uh, overall, in terms of attitude of surgeons as opposed to other medical specialties, surgeons are usually 
the personality of a person who would make a good surgeon is usually somebody who kind of likes more immediate gratification. You know, the good thing about surgeon is patients come to me with structural problems and I actually get to fix them and I actually feel better. I had a patient this morning who had a surgery because on the left side of her body, the nervous compression was causing bad pain down the left leg. I did a surgery that took an hour and a half. She woke up, the left leg pain is gone. So to me, that's an awesome feeling of this immediate gratification. I fixed the problem. Um, other physicians may be different. Some, be, some physicians prefer more to manage chronic diseases and make sure they don't get too bad. Those physicians typically are more likely to become an internal medicine doctor where if you treat diabetes, you know you will probably never going to cure it in a patient, but there is a lot you can do to help it minimize the problems that diabetes causes in your body, but, but it's more of a long-term issue that you're dealing with. To me, that does not appeal as much. To other people, it does. So everybody's different in, the, in terms of their personality, but personality of a surgeon is usually typically somebody who just wants to fix things right now and not wait till years later. Hmm. Um, and now in our current stage in the world, I mean, with the coronavirus and all, how has that really affected doctors in general and even more specifically surgeons such as yourself? Sure. Um, short answer, really badly. Um, long answer, I mean, coronavirus, obviously this pandemic has affected everybody, not just physicians. Um, since I'm a physician, I'll speak for physicians, but um, while in most states in this country, you know, physicians' offices were not forced to shut down, we're obviously considered an essential business, really hard to kind of keep the society going without doctors working. But with that said, still in most physicians' practices, especially private practice, not big hospital organizations, the amount of patient volume went down. And since you know we get paid per patient seen, so to speak, a lot of physicians have lost a lot of income that they otherwise would have had because there's less patients coming in, uh, not necessarily because of pandemic itself, but people are scared they want to go outside even though most physicians' offices are very clean places. Obviously, in my practice, we clean everything, check everybody's temperature, do face masks, you know, everything we can to keep them safe. But still, it's really hard to, for a patient, especially if they have underlying medical uh, conditions and they are at risk of you know, getting harmed by coronavirus, it's hard to convince them to come out and treat their problems. So unfortunately, we have a lot of patients out there right now who are actually neglecting other, their health problems and not getting treated because they're so afraid to come out because of coronavirus. So we have that. For surgeons in particular, most of the hospitals, in order to preserve capacity to deal with the sick patients from coronavirus, actually stopped or really slowed down doing elective surgeries. Most surgeons, most of the surgeries we do are elective, meaning they don't have to be done right away to say, save a life, but they kind of need to be done because uh, patients need them for medical reasons. So if you think about it, technically speaking, other than maybe some cosmetic surgeries, no surgery is ever truly elective. Nobody really just out of, you know, out of blue decides, you know what, I'm just going to go have surgery. I just feel like having surgery. No, they have surgery because they have a problem. Problem may not be so bad as life-threatening, but it's still such a bad problem. They're willing to come see a stranger and let them cut them. I mean, that it shows you how bad those problems are that people want to have surgery for them. So um, most of what we do is not really elective, it's just not emergent, so to speak. Uh, but most of those non-emergent surgeries, when the you know, shutdown started, most hospitals would not perform it. So surgeons whose income is doing surgeries were unable to do surgeries. So obviously it really affected it. A lot of practices either shut down or really decreased their, their volume. Unfortunately, they had to let go of a lot of their staff. 
a lot of surgeons have either not gotten paid or really decreased their salary. So, I mean, it affected everybody badly in the world. I can't say physicians are the only group, but it really, you know, that, that's the group I can speak for. I can definitely tell you that affected us pretty badly. And, um, you know, we're all waiting and hoping this is going to get better and we can go back to a little bit more of a normalcy and hope for the best. Hmm. And how do you see any opportunities uh, that come out of this coronavirus? Um, some, I mean, I guess if you want to seek a silver lining, we're all a lot better now at infection prevention in terms of respiratory infection. We try not to cough in each other's directions. We all wash our hands a little bit more. Uh, people are a lot more conscious about that. Um, we're all a lot more appreciative of what we had because, you know, I never knew that not being able to uh, bite you know, paper towels in a store would be actually a problem to have in America. But, you know, here we are. It was, you know, now it's getting better, but you know you, you're starting to appreciate things that before you really took for granted. So, and that's just a little silly example, but you know we do take a lot less things for granted now that we may have even a year ago. Um, other than that, obviously there's far more bad than good that happened from this, but you know, those are nice lessons to kind of care away from that and use in the future. Hmm. Yeah, um, and then. In your definition, what is your definition of, of success and have you yourself achieved success? Um, unfortunately, there is really no true definition of success. Success compared to whom? I mean, some people say they're successful versus somebody else. Other people say they're successful if they're fulfilled in life. To me, that's more of a better definition of success because if you consider yourself successful because you're earning more money than somebody else or you are doing something better than somebody else you will always find somebody who's going to be better than you so you know if that is your goal you will never truly succeed in life so um you might as well not try that because it's impossible to be perfect you can only try uh to me success is more of a personal fulfillment do i like what i'm doing do i wake up in the morning saying okay i you know I'm actually excited to wake up and do that. And I, I think I have achieved it and have been kind of living that success for the past 10 years. Um, maybe my situation is a little bit more unique. I wanted to become a doctor since I was five. So I really never, you know, imagined my life to be any other way. So I, I am living my dream and uh, I can't imagine you know, better than that. And um, I can't say that, you know, being a doctor is older is to life to me. My other probably even more significant part of my life is my family, my wife and my kids. Um, you know, having a loving family around you to me is another huge success that, you know, makes the life worth living and getting up in the morning and going to work even when, you know, I have to get up at four o'clock in the morning to really round and go do stuff. Um, so those are two big components. You want to be fulfilled both professionally and personally. You know, if only one of those is present, it's hard to consider yourself successful because, you know, in, with most human beings, you um, kind of need both. Hmm. That, that's awesome. Um, and then in your opinion, what are the top maybe three skills that you use every day that an aspiring surgeon should start to develop at a young age? Sure. So I think the biggest one is um, caring. Um, you, uh, you have to care about human beings in order for you to be successful as a physician. You have to be wanting to help because that's what's going to give you fulfillment and motivate you to do everything else. Um, the other skill probably be more communication skill. I 
MS surgeon who does, once again, elective surgeries. Patients come to, be, come to me scared in pain and with a lot of questions and with a lot of mistrust, understandably so. I have to not only tell them, hey, you need surgery, but I also have to explain it in a way that they understand, in a way that makes them not too scared about surgery, in the way they you know, realize what the risks are and are willing to take them, um, to reassure them if things don't go the way we want it to, to go. So communication skill is very important. And then obviously, you know, the clinical skill, the scientific knowledge of what you're doing, you, know, you can't understate that. You know, while you can be a music major in college, you still have to really understand your biochemistry in order to understand how medications work. You have to really understand your anatomy in order to be a good surgeon. So all those, you know, the, you still need to have that scientific background, the clinical skills of being a doctor. Hmm. And then in terms of colleges, I know we've talked a little bit about college and stuff, but in your opinion, what are some of the top colleges that you would recommend to students to actually go into the medical field? Um, I really don't think there is such a thing as a good college to become a doctor or a bad college to become a doctor. I have personally known the uh, physicians who went to Harvard undergrad and I don't think they're very good doctors. I have known doctors who started at a community college and are now excellent doctors and I would trust them with my life. So I don't think it really college matters that much. Obviously, some are more prestigious than others, um, but you know, I, was, I went to University of Kansas. Um, very few people from University of Kansas statistically get into Johns Hopkins University where I went into medical school. My year, there was myself and another guy, so there were two of us that got in. So uh, just because you didn't go to by far most prestigious, well, most world-renowned college in the world, it doesn't really mean that that's what's going to guarantee your acceptance to a good medical school. I think medical schools matter a little bit more. Some do a lot more research than others. That's where you know, it kind of starts to matter. Uh, but college, not necessarily. You, you can, you know, as, as long as you have, you know, decent classes and can learn a scientific background in order to become a doctor, passed an MCAT exam, you can probably, you know, get into a good medical school from any college. Awesome. I mean, and then when looking for someone to hire, what really makes candidates stand out from the crowd? Um, it depends what you hire them for. So, um, for example, I'm now a you know, private business owner, so we did have to hire employees. Uh, we had a completely different set of what criteria we were looking for, depending on the position and the two employees that were hired. Their personalities are quite different, but they're perfect for what their positions are. One is more of a front desk person, a patient care coordinator who has to deal personally a lot with patients. She's a lot more sociable. She's a lot more you know, adapted to that kind of skills. And then we have somebody who is medical assistant and a radiation technologist, a lot more analytical scientific thinking, a lot more repetitive um, procedural type of uh, person and she's perfect for that job. So uh, I wouldn't say there's a certain set of criteria that you would uh, um, you know, always look for. I, I guess with exception being, um, in my opinion, motivation to do good work uh, matters a lot more than experience of past work. So for example, if somebody had 20 years of experience doing what they're doing, but I can't see from either interview or everything, whatever other application materials I have, that they will be motivated to do work for myself, for my business, I would actually not pick that person, but pick somebody who's fresh out of school, but 
they're a lot more motivated, a lot more willing to learn because most jobs, other than I guess, you know, professional jobs where you need professional training, but most other office jobs, you teach most of that on the job. But if people are not willing to try, not willing to learn, no matter how smart they are and how much knowledge they have, they're not going to do very good work for you. To some degree, that applies to physicians as well. Obviously, the more motivated you are to do a good job, the better position you're going to be just because nobody can ever motivate you better than you can motivate yourself. No amount of money, no amount of threats, no amount of rewards will make you a good worker if you don't want to be a good worker. And then just lastly, what do you have any other pieces of advice that you would give to aspiring doctors really in any field or uh, more specifically in your field of surgery? Sure. Um, the biggest, uh, probably, you know, I already kind of said it throughout this talk is, uh, you have to care. Yeah. And to me, you know, uh, I, I have to go through a lot to get to where I get to, you know, you go through a lot of learning. You, you have to sacrifice a lot to become a doctor. You, you have to sacrifice a lot of your personal life. You don't get to go out and party like a lot of, you know, other college students may have to do. You got to study a little bit more. You got to do a lot more work. When you're a resident, you're barely home. You're barely seeing your family. When, I, when you're a tenure physician, it could be even worse. You know, I have to, may have to go to a conference for a week and not see my family just, you know, studying or teaching things at a conference. So there's a lot of sacrifice that you need to do. Uh, work is hard. You know, some, you may not have a good outcome at work. You may have, you know, other physicians you disagree with at work. So there'll be a lot of not very pleasant things to deal with if you're going to be a doctor. But if you truly care about helping people and you actually are successful that you're helping people, that feeling of actually having made a difference in somebody's life makes all that hard stuff worth it, basically. I'm not saying it's going to be easier because of that. It's still going to be hard work. You still got to be willing to do it. But for you to be willing to take it, for you to be willing to do all the hard work, if you really care, you're going to then have such a good positive emotional feedback about what you do you're going to be willing to take that hard work. So basically it's caring. I think that's by far number one uh, quality of what makes somebody a good doctor, no matter what specialty. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to share your knowledge and experiences and really time with us today. We appreciate it here at virtual student experiences and I'm sure the students that will view this later will be grateful to hear what you shared with us today. Um, but just for the students viewing this later, if you guys would like to join us to learn more, please visit our website and sign up for our email list at virtualstudentexperiences.com. And all right, thank you everyone. Thank Stay you. Good luck. Have a nice day.